Welcome to episode number 12 of the Zach Tune Show. This is a big deal. I mean, this is our 12th episode. We've hit a dozen, and there, there's a lot of hype with episode number 12, and I, I think we nailed it. Today's guest is young manager extraordinaire Alex Goodman. Alex manages major label recording artist Dylan Brady, and he's also the head of digital at Riser House Records right here in Nashville. Alex is in the grind of the music business every single day, and he's got so much insight. We talk about TikTok. We talk about building an audience. We talk about the importance of finding early supporters in your career. So much more. There's so much good information here. If you're a young manager, if, if you want to know what are the thought processes of a young manager, this is the episode for you. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Let's dive in. Alex, we are live on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Zach, thank you so much for having me. Man, we've been talking about doing this, and I'm just so glad to be joining you on it. Absolutely. Well, this is really exciting for me because we've had some, you know, we've had some amazing legends on this podcast, some people who in many ways are looking back at their career. They're retired. They're at, you know, they're they're reflecting and looking back, which has been awesome to talk with them in here. But I think one of the main questions I get from listeners is what do I do with my career now? Like now today in the modern music industry, how do I attract labels? How do I attract agencies or publishers? You know, so to talk with someone who is in this right now, who is fighting this fight every single day is really cool. And I'm, I'm really excited to dive into it and see what what you're doing and and what you're about. So let, so let's talk about, about all that. But, um, I just want to start right here. Your client is, is Dylan Brady. He's a country artist in Nashville. How'd you meet Dylan? Love it. Yeah. Thanks, Zach. And, you know, I think it's, as some people might know, you know, we have a great relationship and I've, you know, been staying close to the podcast. So I'm honored to join some of those legends that, uh, you know, came before me and hopefully I can don't have, you know, nearly the experience that some of the other guys that came on Joe or, you know, some of the people, but I uh, definitely feel like I have a a grasp on what's going on right now. um, Being in the trenches, so to speak, um, and not necessarily back on the line watching over from the hill. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to give some experience. Uh, When it comes to Dylan Brady, him and I actually met kind of, you know, one of those things you hear about managers and artists, uh, right place, right time. I was working in Chicago. I had just gotten into management. At the time, I was a studio manager. So I really handled all the calendars for our rooms, our clients. Um, And while I was doing that, what studio were you working at? I was working at Slang Studios, uh, which was started by Vince Lawrence, um, a very popular name in the house music uh, coming out of Chicago, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and Vince had a very successful studio. We, we did a lot of stuff with a lot of really great clients. Um, and that kind of gave me my first taste of the industry. Uh, and that really kind of let me know that I wanted, because I started wanting to do en- audio engineering. Uh, and that's what I actually went to school for. Spending time as the studio manager and really learning some of the business aspects led me to that direction. Um, And I flew back to New York after living in Chicago, going to school in Chicago, and I saw a kid on stage with his twin brother, and they blew me out of the water. Um, And I didn't really know, you know, everything I needed to know at that point, but I knew I wanted to work with Dylan, and I knew that the potential was there, and the raw talent was really clear. Um, So... I said, hey, I'd love to get together. Let's chat. I'm from the same hometown. And a couple of weeks went by. And, you know, next thing he knows, he calls me. He's got an opportunity with the Disney Channel. And he'd like me to come help and uh, get some songs together in the studio. Fast forward six years, and we're uh, still working together now. 
Okay, so hold on. So he's he's playing the show with his brother, and and do you just sort of like at the end, do you just walk up to him and and you say, look, love what you're doing, you know. I just, if you ever need anything, let me know. Here, here's my number, essentially, or, or how, you know, what was that conversation like? Exactly. I, exactly like that. I didn't necessarily think um, it was going to be a management role at that point. I thought that, you know, this is a super talented kid, and I was working a lot of video production out of Chicago as well. Maybe it was a video. Um, maybe there was just some way that we could collaborate. You know, it was at the time when social media was really getting a lot of steam six years ago. You got to remember that the social media scene of the industry hasn't really been, it started maybe, you know, seven or eight years ago with discovery of like Shawn Mendes on Vine. You look back, Justin on Twitter. So you really do see social media expanded massively over the last six years. And I think that when I first met Dylan, it was kind of this idea of, well, maybe we could build up a Shawn Mendes inside a social world, or, you know, maybe there is something, but it definitely did not go through my mind at that moment that this will be a management relationship. It was more so, and I think that this is my advice to anybody who's in the situation of, I want to be a manager. It was just put yourself into an opportunity. Um, just do something for somebody who's a creative talent. And if you believe in them, foster that further. Um, so I, all the time, people, like you said, somebody says, Hey, I'd love to be a manager. Where should I start? Find a really great artist, book some rights for them. Find out what the other writers think about them. Book a show with them. Find out what the audience thinks about them. You know, whatever you could possibly do, sit down and listen to some music. See if there's something you believe in. I think that the biggest thing is just to find relationships and opportunities. And then the right one will poke its head out that says, hey, this is worth a lot of time and blood and sweat and equity. Totally. Okay, so he calls you like a couple weeks later and he says, he, you, he, he's going into the studio. So you go, great. Like, tell me when and where. I'll be there, essentially. So you show up in the studio, and, and what was that first studio session like? Great question, because I'm not a producer. I'll never pretend to be a producer. Um, but quite honestly, you know, what that was was finding the right studio for Dylan, finding the right engineer for Dylan, going through the right songs. We had a very interesting opportunity, and this is probably one of the reasons why my management relationship fostered within Dylan was because immediately after meeting, the Disney Channel came to him with an opportunity. Um, a little background on Dylan Brady for those that don't know it. He is a singer-songwriter from New York, uh, living in Nashville now. He has Tourette's Syndrome as well. Uh, so as a kid, he used to go into schools and speak about what Tourette's Syndrome is, educating kids on it, educating the schools. Um, and Disney Channel heard about this. We had a young kid who has a difference, has something that really should be hindering him, but he's, he's embraced it and he's using it to help other kids accept each other. Um, and he's a musician. It just fit the Disney Channel brand perfectly. So Dylan didn't necessarily know what to do with that, though. And I think that he brought me in to kind of help him pick a song that worked for Disney Channel, start working the relationships beyond just the producers of the show, but within the radio. You know, Phil Garini has been a great friend to Dylan for a long time. And, you know, within every aspect that we could really take advantage of the Disney situation. Um, and I think that's really what fostered us further was having that immediate task to work on that was a direct result of something that Dylan had done. And then being able to see the result of that being a direct result of what we both did together. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that building that early story is such a key part of 
how you later sign that label dealer, that agency mm -hmm. deal. You know, how do you take something and build, or how do you take nothing and build something? And that's what you guys did so brilliantly, independently, through the Disney Channel thing. And then through that as well, I, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about building that early story, gaining that early momentum. And, you know, I know that like early on, Dylan was embraced by Zach Brown and, and his team and also like, uh, you know, uh, Joe Rooney of the Rascal Flats. Mm -hmm. How important were those early relationships with people who were already established in the industry? Yeah, great question. Um... I, you know, I try to ask the good questions. I, I really do. And I've got a great research team, let me tell you. <laughs> yes, yeah, fantastic. Send them over my way one time, would you? I think that um, the relationships are everything. To be honest with you, you can have the most talented person in the world. And, you know, hopefully maybe you find a viral moment in that. But without the relationships, you know, it doesn't leave phase one, you know, which is building the audience and building a, a reason for people to care. And I think that, well, we were able to do that with Dylan because we had a very unique situation in he was embraced into social media very quickly. Um, we were able to put him in opportunities that made him stand out amongst the other kids. So an example of that is after the Disney Channel, we started to get a little bit of traction. We did a couple of shows. He opened for Megan Trainer, and that all just came out of um, relationship. Uh, once we were able to put the Megan Trainer opening behind us, we were able to get a couple more shows and then we wound up doing a social media tour. Uh, and we did a social media tour with a group called Why Don't We? They weren't Why Don't We at the time. They later became Why Don't We? But what that allowed us to do was build a huge, huge social media fan base for Dylan going into Belmont. Because Dylan wound up moving to Nashville to go to Belmont, but he was able to come into Belmont being one of the, one of the freshmen with a following, a large social media following, um, as silly as it sounds, a blue check mark. And then he also had the experience of releasing music, doing shows, and being an artist before he was at Belmont. Belmont brought us to Nashville. Belmont started opening some doors. But then what happened was we got some really great relationships because we started to be in the right city at that point. We had set up the right momentum, and now we put ourselves in the right place. When we came to Nashville, we met a woman named Dee Dee Agar. She's from a... Uh, she actually works at Goldman Sachs. Uh, she's not necessarily in the music industry, but incredibly well-connected woman, incredibly loving and open. And I, Didi is one of the reasons why we are here today. Um, and it's important to find those champions because she was able to turn the door and say, hey, you need to meet Joe Don from Rascal Flats. You need to meet Zach Brown. Whoever it was that Didi connected us with started to legitimize Dylan in a really serious way. Because, like I said, we had the social media game, we had the, some experience, we had the blue check mark, but now what we needed was superstars or people whose opinions really mattered to buy in. And that's what we got with Zach Brown and we got with the Rascal Flats. That allowed Dylan to really legitimize himself and stand out when we started to shop the label deals. And so I think that the relationships, to answer your question, were the most important thing that we fostered throughout this process. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the show. Some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called The Nashville Briefing. Really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry. And if you wanna learn more about it, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe. Also, if you're enjoying this show and specifically this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on your podcast listening platform. Thanks so much, now back to the show.
Okay, let's go back for a second. So while Dylan moves to Nashville, you were actually living in New York, and yeah. you, and you were working for for another act because Dylan's career was still very early. You were fully you know engaged in that, but you were working for Sir the Baptist. How did you get connected up with those guys, and and what kind of stuff were you doing for them? Absolutely, yeah. So it's funny, you know, and Dylan and I are best friends now, so I have no problem saying this, but when he first decided to go to uh, Belmont, I thought he was crazy. I said, all right, well, there goes your music career. Welcome to being a college student. I'll see you in four years. Um, luckily enough for me, Dylan realized that music was his path. He dropped out of Belmont. But before that happened, I needed to keep, you know, the money coming in. I needed to keep the job rolling. So I wound up uh, actually being a tour manager for Sword of the Baptist, uh, an Atlantic artist at the time. Um, uh, coming out of Chicago, very chance-like vibes, uh, gospel, hip-hop feel. Sir had grown up in the church um, and was really buzzing. We played every major festival, uh, was booked by Marty uh, Diamond at Paragon. So we were, you know, had a great agent. We had a really great opportunity to play Voodoo, Lala, you know, any major festival you could think of, we were on the bill. Uh, and that was a really great experience for me in tour managing because it gave me the background of working and the whole team, you know, dealing with the label at that point, which I had never dealt with at that point, dealing with another manager, um, you know, who does the day to day. It was a lot of moving pieces that really showed me, Hey, you know, when you get to the place where you're in charge of all these pieces, this is how they all work. Um, so I would say that, and this is another great, you know, point to any young manager who kind of wants to get their foot in the door. Tour managing is always a great place to start. It's the, definitely the toughest toughest manager in the game because you're always on the road you're you're the problem solver buck stops with you um but at the same time it gives you a really great understanding of how everything works you know even down to payment for the show is guarantees whatever you might need totally. to really, you know start understanding tour management's where to cut your teeth the thing about tour management that i find when i go on the road is when things go smoothly, you get zero credit, and when zero they go credit. and when things go bad, everyone blames the tour manager. <laughs> That's so true, so true. And you know what? You find your best friends wind up being, you know, the bandmates because you're the one oh, that's totally. solving all of their problems. <laughs> you know, so they love totally. you until they don't. So totally okay. So so Dylan's in Nashville. You're in New York. And when I first met Dylan. You were actually not in Nashville yet. You were still in New York. I mm -hmm. guess, were, were you on the road at the time when... Yeah, I was... That was... I think you met Dylan in 2017, 2018. I had done 250 dates that year. Uh, I actually was in Europe when you met Dylan for the first time, I remember. Holy cow. Okay, so, so we meet Dylan. And then the first time I met you was at a WME showcase. I remember, I remember yeah. it was Dylan's WME showcase... It was, it was, you know, I remember you being stressed out of your mind. I was pretty chill and relaxed, you know, low pressure for me. But, um, but you were like, you know, running around working the room like crazy. And, you know, okay, so the WME Showcase, that to me felt like a little bit of a real point. You know, getting that agency mm -hmm. deal is always yeah. a reputable thing to have in your corner. How, talk about building up to the point where you guys were able to sign that deal and have that sure. showcase and, you know, join an agency. Absolutely. Um, that was probably the most pivotal point of Dylan's career that night. Um, we had worked hard to get to that point. Jodam Rooney, uh, who's in Rascal Flats, who's been a huge champion of Dylan, Rascal Flats was signed to WME too. And he reached out and said, hey, I think we should do this showcase for the agency. Um, and 
in my head, I said, you know, that's a great idea for the agency, but let's take that a step further because we have so much buzz right now. So many people are talking about Dylan. And I think that this is where our path differs from a lot of the people in Nashville. I think a lot of artists in Nashville, you see signed to a publishing deal. They write for a few years. They keep some songs for themselves. They try to grab a radio hit somewhere along the way and build off that. That was never the path we wanted. Um, we never wanted to sit and write for five years. Dylan's a young kid. We wanted the young artist. We wanted the young demo. We want to be the Justin Bieber of Nashville. So it had to happen now. And so what we did was we put every single A&R we could possibly put into that room as well at the same exact time. And then we went out and we grabbed a brand deal too. So we came into that WME showcase with a brand deal with a, a major water company. And then we also had every single A&R in that room. Dylan practiced that that performance mm, 150 times i've never seen him practice for something so much we rehearsed we went to space we walked through the space dylan i was like dylan you actually have to walk if you've ever been to the wme space in nashville there's a big step system they actually sit on the steps it goes down the stage at the bottom i said dylan you actually need to walk up these steps you know engage the crowd after that every single a r that was in the room wanted a meeting the agency wanted to sign us on the spot and becky garden hire who is our agent now comes to me and says We've never in our entire lives seen anybody walk up the steps of the, of the performance room. So what we really did was try to take that moment and make the biggest moment possible out of it. Um, and that's exactly what we did. So, well, you know. I mean, I think that the steps of WME is an incredibly hard gig to play. I mean, everyone there wants to be supportive and they're all, they all mean well. Mm -hmm. But the reality is at the end of the day, the steps kind of hurt your back. It very much feels like, you know, this is part of my job watching yeah. this, this performance. Sometimes the energy on the steps is a little bit low and that's not a bad thing. Like, it, like I totally get it. Um, and, and, you know, I think sometimes the interaction, it can sort of feel like there's a wall between the performer and, you know, the agents who are listening. And, you know, these are sure. the biggest agents in the music industry. They, you know, I think it's very intimidating also for artists. And I remember Dylan being so confident so cool calm collective funny engaging and he totally won the room over i mean I, I and i've seen a million shows and i've seen a ton of artists also give great performances on those steps but it felt like dylan just totally crushed it he nailed the steps which is sort of like a rite of passage i feel like in nashville can you win the steps you know can you can win, you the, win steps? the steps <laughs> can you win the steps at wme so okay so so now you guys are really moving you're cooking with gas and so now you're shopping around with label deals. Now, I'm curious as to after that moment, because it's never quite that easy. After that moment, you know, you're feeling like you crushed this, we're on top of the world. What surprised you about eventually getting the label deal? Was it a little harder than you thought it was going to be? Was it, was it, you know, easy? Like, like, what did you not expect from that, that came out of signing the label deal? Yes, the label deal was harder to close than we had imagined. Um, and I think that what we really wanted to gain out of the label deal was the leverage of a record label. We wanted to elevate ourselves to the point where, you know, the agent can now start going out and getting shows. It's really hard to do, get those shows you want without the label deal. And what we wanted was a team around us. Uh, I think a lot of people look at the label deal and say like, well, this will be a good thing for us to get, or, you know, we need this or it's going to look good or whatever it might be. And I don't think they actually think about what that means. You know, some people think of it as a dollar form. Hey, it's an advance. 
Uh, Sir, actually, Sir the Baptist, who I worked with for a while, we mentioned, actually said something incredibly interesting one time. He said, they paid me some money, but I would have signed this label deal for one penny because I just hired 150 people to start working my project at Atlantic and they paid me for it. I would have signed that deal for a penny. So I think that we were looking at it as, you know, we need some people to step in here and help us A&R these projects, help us get to radio, help us with our digital marketing. At the time, you know, I didn't have a full understanding of what a true view ad spend was or something like that. We needed people to come in and help elevate us. Um, and there's two options to do. We could have done it with the publishing deal. But like I said, we just didn't want to go the slow route of writing songs for a while and then transition to being an artist. We want to attack when Dylan's young. So that's why, you know, it was a pretty easy decision between publisher and label. At that point, it was just about which label is going to see the vision that we see, which is worldwide, not just Nashville. And that's why we picked a label that is New York-based. Um, they have a ton of country acts as well. We're honored to be alongside Matt Stell and Chris Bandy. Um, but we are also honored to be alongside Lennon Stella, uh, Noah Cyrus. Um, so there's a pop feel too. And they understand all the channels that Dylan will eventually head down. Totally. And then you guys also teamed up with the Nashville label, which was a pretty cool um, joint venture with Riser House in Nashville. So you were still able to have boots on the ground in Nashville, but you were also, we were also able to pull the advantages of having a worldwide international label with records, right? Yes. So that came, uh, Dylan's deal is actually a JV between Columbia, um, records out of New York. And then it had a one, uh, one song deal with Riser House out of Nashville. Um, and that was the first song we did. And the idea was to introduce Dylan to Nashville with the Nashville contacts and the right relationships, which were inside of Riser House. But to take the A&R team and the marketing team that Columbia has, the digital team, and pull them all together into a really, really, the way Barry says it, entrepreneurial label deal. Um, totally. So that was really interesting to us. And it was important to do that because Dylan is a country artist through and through. We needed to be inside the country scene. Um, and, you know, that's what Riser has brought to the table for us. Totally. So I, I think everything that you guys have been able to do, whether you've been, when things are going great, and now, now I've been, you know, friends with you guys, following you guys for, you know, over, what, like a year and a half, two years now. And when things are going great, it's because there's some level of audience engagement. You're able to mm -hmm. prove an audience. And when things are going maybe slightly less great, the problem always comes down to we're not engaging the audience. Like it mm -hmm. always comes down to how much engagement can we show and how do we keep building new engagement? And you were really one of the first people that I knew that was able to sort of figure out TikTok and build a following on TikTok for your artists with Dylan. But talk a little bit about, um, you know, building that audience. What does it take? And, and then I'd love to sort of talk a little bit about TikTok and how you guys were able to use TikTok for your audience. Because now the secret's starting to get out on TikTok and I still feel like not enough artists yeah. are using it. This is the crazy thing. <laughs> yes. Um, so the first part of that question, I think, was kind of an audience fostering question. Um, yep. Because you said TikTok, and then my brain just started to say TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. So, you know, I think the, the, the first part of that question, though, really is in audience engagement. And for that, that started with the social media tour, to be honest with you. 
we put him around other kids who have large followings, large audiences, um, and piggybacked off them or cherry picked, you know, and that started Dylan's base. I remember we had a huge party today. He hit 10,000 on uh, Instagram. So I think that, you know, we saw it from day one. Our vision was definitely in country radio. We know you need country radio. You know, we have a ton of respect for country radio, but we also wanted to break that mold a little bit more and be the artist that also succeeds within digital and inside the social media realm. Um, I think that if you look at pop and you say, you know, if you start a new artist on pop and you say, we're going to start with a radio campaign, people look at you at 10 heads. There's no discovery there. We wanted to start, have the pop audience start discovering Dylan, but just say it's country music. And, you know, they can make a decision whether or not they're listening to Dylan because uh, it's country or if it's pop, they, we don't care. They're just listening to Dylan. Totally. And that's what we started. We found inside the audience of the social media demographic. Now, we really worked hard at Instagram and Twitter for a long time and then came around TikTok. Um, Dylan okay, has so, almost a million. Yeah. Go ahead. Give me the top three TikTok tips. I, I don't know if you can even do this. You might not want to give away your secrets. I don't know. But give me the top three TikTok tips. I mean, what's crazy to me is like, you know, I just did this sort of like study analysis of artists in the industry. I looked at three major label artists that have signed within the past year and then, and, and name brand labels as well, not just ma the majors. And then I looked at three TikTok stars mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, you can find that study on my website, thenationalbriefing.com. But I think what I, well, my biggest takeaway was that the, there were these name brand label artists that were not using TikTok over the, Two weeks, I think one of them maybe posted two videos. You know, you know, most of them were not posting on TikTok at all. And to me, it seems like, like that's insane. Like, how are you not embracing this technology that is just so clearly the future? Now, if you look at, you know, what TikTok did to the Trump, um, you know, to the, the, the Trump event, you know, the other night where, you know, they, you know, it's like, it's so obvious this platform, this app is taking over. And not everybody's getting on it yet. So talk a little bit about, you know, if you agree, should people be on TikTok and top three TikTok tips that you, that you tell everyone? I will say people might think this is crazy. In two years, I don't think that you sign a major label deal without having a very large TikTok following. That's definitive. So when Break it comes to... Down. like yeah, yeah. When it, So when it comes to, you know, should you use TikTok? Yes, 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 yes. Um, it is the number one discovery platform in the world, period. It does not, you do not curate your own feed. TikTok curates it for you. It allows for a massive amount of discovery. It also allows for the sounds to take off. So not only are we seeing individual profiles take off, we're seeing the sounds that people use take off and being linked directly to Apple Music. You can click a button and switch over to a streaming platform. That's not happening on any other platform. If you're an artist, you need TikTok. Now, where we've been fortunate, and I'll say some of my secret tips, um, I think that the, my biggest tip is consistency. I think that if you don't have consistency, then give up tomorrow. You need to be posting every day, at least once a day. If it's not that, then it could be something else. But you have to be posting once a day. Now, beyond that, find trends, engage with the trends. These are the same 
there's no real secret to TikTok. It's the same people, same thing people say every time you talk about TikTok. There are trends. What are the trends? What are the sounds? Consistency. Keep posting every single day. Using the right hashtags. Following the right stories. Engaging with the right people. That's those are the three things that everyone will tell you to do for TikTok. The biggest problem people have is getting over the fact that it's not Instagram, that it's this newer app and the kids are using it and saying, it's not for me. And then, you know, forgetting about it. You need to be engaging with your audience and your audience right now is on TikTok. No matter the market, there's country. You can go on there right now and type in country music. You will see millions and millions of videos of country songs, country artists, country people doing country things. You can type in hip hop, pop, every genre is on there. K-pop, it's all on there. There's no, there's no reason to say, well, that's not gonna work for me or TikTok won't do anything for me because one video can change everything about what you have going on. Totally, and, there's, and I think that there's no, it, it's exactly like you said, like you'll be posting along and you might get 10,000, you know, 20,000, you know, 15,000 likes, views, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, for some unexplainable reason, you post a video, you get a million views. You know, that doesn't happen on YouTube in nearly the same way, probably, be, you know, mainly because you just can't post as much, you know, long form content, it takes so much yeah. longer to create, but to get, you know, those views and to sort of let your content go with the wind, it's like TikTok is, is the platform right now. And, you know, the other thing too is with the curation, is you curating your own Instagram feed makes it incredibly hard for someone to discover something new on Instagram. Totally. You curating the, the people that you subscribe to on YouTube makes it very hard for you to find somebody new on YouTube. Somebody who's a big you know, fan of YouTube, watches YouTube a lot, has the YouTubers that they watch, they're subscribed to, and they don't step out of that bubble too much because they make so much content amongst the 10 or 15 of them that you can't watch all of it in a week. So why are you going to go find somebody else? But when it comes to TikTok, the content is so short and it's curated for you by somebody else based on what you might like, that discovery is caked in. It's built into the model. So if you're looking to become a new artist and you're looking to not spend a lot of dollars to stand out, this is a platform that puts eyeballs in front of you for free. Totally. Now I'm curious. I mean, you said Dylan almost has a million followers on TikTok and he does. Everyone go follow Dylan on TikTok. Dylan um, C. Brady. Dylan C. Brady, because Dylan Brady of the Gex screwed us over and took the name. 100 Gex, yes. Uh, we can 100 have a nice Gex. Sorry about that. Uh, what a bastard. No, I'm kidding. I'm sure he's very nice. Um, so, so, like you said, you, you almost have a million followers on TikTok. How are you seeing, and I know, I know you, I, I'm not sure if you guys have, re have released music since um, you've sort of built this massive TikTok following, but how have you seen? What, you know, can you say what percentage of those followers have, have transferred over into meaningful fans and followers for Dylan? I can't give you the data point on the exact percentage that switched over. But what I can tell you is we have four songs released on Dylan's DSP profiles right now. Three of them were on a major label release. One of them was independent before we signed the label deal. The one song right now that is moving needles, that is gaining the most streaming each week over week is the song that we released independently because we are pushing that on TikTok. Wow. Because, and we didn't, when I say push it on TikTok, I mean, we posted a couple videos with the sound, 
and the sound just rolled itself. So, and we didn't do that purposely to, you know, use our independent song. We, we posted all of the music over the course of time. This one particular song, which has no playlisting, no, no independent marketing, no anything else but being posted on the DSPs and now on Dylan's TikTok is gaining so much organic steam that we're not adding any marketing dollars to it. And now it's just a revenue generator for us. Totally. There's okay, also so, a whole, yeah. before I let you go, there's also a whole other aspect on TikTok of the live audience. So they allow for live streaming within the app and they actually allow the audience to tip the artist it's becoming another revenue stream for us because of the size of the live shows Dylan's doing. Dylan also throughout quarantine has done a live almost every single day. He actually did 84 straight lives before he asked me if he could take a break. 84 and, straight lives. And what'd you lives. say? No, get to 85, I said, no, you what loser. You, why would you ask for a break? <laughs> 84 straight lives. Dylan played for almost a million people over the course of quarantine which is larger than he's probably ever played for if you add up all the other shows we've done. Totally. So it's given us a live platform to make money off of. It's given us revenue stream back to our other songs and it's gained an audience. I'll tell you another really quick thing about TikTok. We've been trying to track down social media agent for Dylan for a very long time. Uh, someone that will come in and bring brand deals. Dylan's Instagram is at 50,000. You heard me a couple minutes ago say, you know, we celebrated 10,000. Those 40,000 followers that we've gained since then have been pulling teeth to get, you know, constant content. Instagram is so hard to work. You look for that viral moment. You ask people to post about you. We've been on TikTok for, I want to say, less than eight months. Seriously, January 6th, January was the month that we really started working it hard. In six months, we've done 800,000 followers. Crazy. And, And I think this was something, like, especially early on when quarantine hit, you guys, I really do think were, and I'm not just saying this, you were really streaming more than most people were. And I think mm-hmm. most people were saying, you know, at the time, like, well, don't, it's not even worth live streaming because the space is so crowded or like it's oversaturated, like you'll never cut through. And like early on, you'd be watching Dylan and, and he'd have 20, you know, 30, 50 people watching, 80 people watching, whatever it is, which doesn't sound insane, but kind of, you know, with the consistency, it's like over time, that's a lot of people. And even if he wasn't breaking through to having like 500 people, 10,000 people watching his stream at one time, mm-hmm. he was still making meaningful connections with individuals, which I think can't be overlooked. And I think still people say like, well, you know, everyone's live streaming it. Like it's oversaturated. It's like, well, like, you know, how like 10 people get 10 people to watch your live stream. That's all you, that's all you need today. Right. Five people and be consistent with it. Exactly. Like what you're saying. And you're not going to cut through in a major way you know, maybe at first, but you got to start somewhere. If you're not, you know, getting a couple people to engage with you now, you'll never get anywhere. I think if you look at the young artists in Nashville who are trying to build up their, you know, get to the record label, get to the publishing deal. I think if you told them, hey, I can get you five new fans a day for the next six months, every single one of them would say yes to that. And the way to do that is on TikTok. And in the, like you said, we, had, we started with 40, 50, 60 people in the lives. Now Dylan does a live for 300 people. And what that is, is the consistency, the buildup, the knowing that that's what's going to happen each day. It became in a moment for these fans to engage with Dylan. Every day at three o'clock, I know I'm going to be able to 
it's going to break up my day. It's going to break up my quarantine. It's going to break up my homework. It's going to break up my work day. It's, this is my moment where I'm going to be able to just engage with Dylan. And it became a big moment. And that's how, you know, I think that that's been one of the really great things about Dylan being able to reconnect with his audience during this time is the amount of fans that I, I see now who are what we call the super fan the one that comments on every post three or four times, the one that is always engaging. Dylan actually gives his phone number out to his fans um, and, you know, really wants to connect with them on a personal level. So we know them personally, whether it's, you know, it's Tay or Anissa, or it gives you a really good connection with your fan base. Um, It's a magical thing. Totally. Okay. So now you're, you know, recently, I think, you know, especially at COVID, a little bit before COVID, you've now teamed up with, you know, Riser House that we were saying, and you're helping them with, a, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. You know, talk about that relationship. How did that come together? And then what kind of stuff are you doing with Riser House right now? And sure. if you don't know, Riser House is Mitchell Tempe's label. They're incredibly well-respected, you know, independent label based out of Nashville. Yeah, another right place, right time. You heard me talk a little bit earlier about um, Dylan actually having a, a one song deal with Riser House. Um, that's where I initially met Jennifer Johnson and Matt Swanson, um, Matt, the owner and Jennifer, the president. And I knew, I knew the moment I met Jennifer that we would work together in some capacity down the road. Um, it actually got to the point um, in February, right before COVID really hit that I was starting to look for my next client. Um, number two, number three, I was ready to expand the roster. I was ready to bring in, somebody else to work on a management company with me. I was really ready to start this whole other branch that I thought I was going down. And Jennifer approached me and said, you know, I'd love for you to come in and pretty much do what you're doing right now for Dylan on a, you know, digital and strategy side, but do it for our label and all our other artists. Um, so I came on board. Uh, I joined them um, working digital media and strategy for them. Uh, it's been an amazing experience to, you know, one step out of the role of manager uh, and into the role of marketer um, has been really great. It's given me a ton of um, awareness to other artists who maybe not social media friendly or who are not, you know, don't just play into I'm a TikTok artist or I'm a you know social media artist. So that's been um, really, really valuable for me as well. And I think that when you look at Riser House, there was no other place to do what I'm trying to do besides Riser House. Uh, and what I mean by that is an incredibly successful independent label. Their first artist went platinum on his platinum number one on his first song, gold on his second song. Um, it's a sister company to Jennifer Johnson's Song Factory, um, who has a rock star lineup of John Party, Dustin Lynch, Ashley McBride. Um, it was the right place to start what we're going to start next. And to build out more of the digital world to Nashville, more of the streaming world to Nashville. Um, I think what we're starting to look at is a transition, not out of country radio, but during this you know, COVID time, you've seen radio take a hit on their revenue, but you've seen streaming increase tenfold. And I think what's going to happen is labels are going to start saying, well, we need to generate more revenue. And we're going to have to do that within streaming. So we're going to need to put more time and energy into the digital space, into the digital artist, investing in artists that already have digital audiences built, um, who are content creators, who can make their own videos or produce their own music. 
whatever it might be. So, you know, I saw an opportunity with Jennifer and Matt to come in there and start working that angle and start building up some of our other aspects. So, you know, we definitely, um, you know, right now we're working uh, Megan Patrick, uh, Dylan Carmichael. Uh, we're about to start the launch of a new artist named Carl Michael. Um, so we're really, not to be really, confused. Not to be confused. And not to be confused. Dylan Carmichael with Dylan Brady, you know, it, it gets confusing. If I didn't have a bunch of inboxes, it'd be a lot harder. But ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, what we wanted to do was, was start building something um, new and fresh. And while working our other artists, we're going to start to incorporate more digital world uh, and more digital aspects into what we're trying to do. Awesome. Okay, so what is happening with Dylan right now in the next, you know, year, five years? You know, what, what are we shooting for? What can we expect? What should we be on the lookout for? Fill us in. Yeah, so you told me that you were going to reach out to the Grammys about the performance next year. So that's starting to get going. Um, I did. Well, I was hoping it'd be canceled so I'd be off the hook because of COVID. I'm it, hoping that's it. still the case. If it is canceled, I'll be sure to reach out. Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think that what we're really looking for in Dylan Brady over the next few years is um, that single. You know, Dylan had some success now. We've established who we are. Now we need to say, here's our single. Um, and that's what we're looking for. So right now, Dylan's in the studio. He's been producing a bunch of songs. Uh, Ash Bowers has been an incredible A&R to us um, and a talent in helping us uh, procure the producers and the songs and the right music. Uh, Katie Kirkover at Sony ATV has also been amazing in helping us acquire some pitches. So right now we're listening to music. We're producing some songs. We're really working what we can into um, building out his next release. Uh, and I think that what we're going to do with his next release is actually go with a very heavy digital game at first. Really push the TikTok following to stream the music really try to find some viral moments within the sounds on TikTok um, and really build up that audience using TikTok first before we step to country radio. Um, I don't think it's a secret. I'm happy to talk about it. We actually had a song with Dylan, the first song we did called Over Us, uh, almost at 2 million streams on Spotify. We've had some success. It didn't hit the way we wanted to, and we expected that to be the radio song coming out of the gate. So we've kind of taken a step back and said, all right, let's readdress the audience again. Let's rebuild, you know, that loyal, loyal base that we had going into the record deal, you know, two years ago. And then let's come with the right song again. Um, so that's what we're working on. Okay, so what, how do you say, you know, you juggle a lot of stuff. You've got the Dylan stuff, which is very, you know, full time. And then you've got the Riser House stuff. And, you know, and, you know, we're, we're all, you know, I'm at home right now. You're at home. We're not living in Nashville. Like, how do you stay connected in the Nashville community during this time? You know, how do you juggle everything you're working on? What's the, what's the organization tip? This is the part where Zach wants you to say, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I read the Nashville briefing, and it keeps me up to date. Oh, do you? Um, that's, that's a great tip, actually. <laughs> I, I do, yes. Um, no, in all seriousness, the Nashville briefing is a great tool. I think that it's constant communication with people. I mean, I don't, I think that people have stopped seeing each other in person, but I don't think that anybody's really stopped working or moving needles forward. So, I mean, I spend hours and hours of my day on zoom, uh, on phone calls. I'm constantly checking back in with, you know, Dylan and his whole team, uh, and in the riser house team. I think that in my brain, I kind of just process it like that in two different hands, make sure all the balls are up in the air for Dylan, 
all the balls are up in the air for the rising house team and just keep that juggling going on. Um, for me, I think it's also really important to have a routine. I think that, you know, when we're in the situation that we're in right now, I think it's really, really important that you don't fall into a laziness or a, you know, I can get that done at another point. What I try to do is, you know, be up at the same time every day, start my morning off, you know, maybe some stocks, look, you know, read some news, see what's going on in the stock game first. That kind of just gives me a worldly perspective. Uh, and then it's into, I normally, you know, start at the beginning of my day with a chunk of, you know, the boring emails, phone call stuff, get a little bit more creative in the afternoon when I start to get bored. Uh, and then, you know, kind of play it out through the rest of the day, whatever else has to happen. I think that the other thing too, is just that this is an amazing time. You know, it's a really tough time and I don't want to, you know, mediate, you know, or mitigate that for anybody. I think there's a lot of really crazy stuff going on in the world. I think we really need to be in tune to it, but I think it's also an opportunity where we're seeing a ton of people spend a lot more time on the, in the digital world, consuming music, consuming social media, learning about movements that are going on in the world, learning about diseases, everything that's going on is being consumed through social media. You're spending a ton of time on it. So it's a great opportunity to make the change that we see happening in the world, but also to grow your audience, grow the people that are listening to you, whatever reason they're listening to you for. Um, and I, I think that we're seeing a really great opportunity in that, um, specifically within COVID, keeping everybody at home. To totally. What time do you wake up, by the way? Uh, well, I'm living on the East Coast right now, and I have to be up before pre-market. So I'm normally up between, you know, 6.30 and 7 every morning. Shut um, the front door. Are you serious? You, you get up that early every morning? Yeah, I try to. And then, you know, if Jennifer's listening to this, it'll blow this idea. But I normally also send out one or two emails around 7.30. So everyone in Nashville thinks I'm working by, you know, 6.30. It's really just absolutely perfect. You know, you could set those to go automatically the evening before. Now you're starting to make me think that you're not up at 5 a.m. when the national briefing goes out. Let me tell you something, okay? I'm, I'm a mess right now. Well, the national briefing, I keep writing it later and later. So, and that's sort of by design because if I write it too early, then like other news can sometimes happen and then I have to get back into it. It's like, like I try to do it in one shot. So, I, you know, usually I try to write it at 10 and then sometimes that gets pushed to 11. Or, you know, sometimes I'm starting even later. And then I end up finishing it at like 3 in the morning, like 2.30, 3 in the morning. So I go to bed, I, I wake up at like 10, 11 o'clock. And every time I try to get, because I do it every other day, so I try to get back on like a normal schedule. And then, I, and then like the next night, I'll write again. I'll go to bed at like 3 in the morning. I'll wake up like 10, 11 o'clock. Yesterday, we just got a smoker and, you know, a, a, like, a, like a barbecue. Like, and, and, oh, sure. You know, and the and the brisket on oh, we, we did ribs yesterday. It took like it took forever. It took so many hours to cook. I had to wake up at eight thirty to get the the ribs on the, the ribs going to get the ribs going. So that was like good motivation to get up. And then you know on tomorrow on Monday I've got like a seven thirty call national time. So eight thirty. So that might not seem that early, but for me that's like really early. So slowly I'm trying to get back on normal schedule, but. COVID's just completely messed me up. Normally, I'm up at like 7, like 7, 7.30. 6.30 is crazy. I, I, you know, I'll be completely transparent with you, Zach. I am a uh, huge Barstool fan, a uh, huge fan of Portnoy, Dave Portnoy. Um, and while I was in COVID, you know, consuming some of his content, he was trading stocks, day trading stocks. And I kind of said to myself, you know, that could be a fun thing to kind of just do while I can't gamble or, you know, do anything else and just keep myself entertained. Um, and I had trade stocks. I had, you know, owned some stocks. So I was like, 
you know what? I'll get into this. It'll be fun. And uh, that actually has been a huge catalyst to waking, waking up, up at early. 7.30 because you got to get into the pre-market. The market moves the most in the first 15 minutes. If you're not ready to go, you're behind. So I think that, uh, you know. How, how are you doing, by the way? Have, have you done well trading day stocks or? or you know, I'm not say? doing as well as Dave is. I was, Dave, was work, Dave got into the, uh, the, the airlines a little earlier than I did. And, you know, I didn't think they were coming back as fast as they did. So I've had some success. Um, as Dave says, stocks only go up. So that's what I'm hoping on. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Dave Portnoy. I, I try to live my life by, by everything he does. Well, Alex, this has, been such, this has been such a pleasure, such a thrill. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us because we know how busy you keep your schedule. So really appreciate it. And, you know, I couldn't be more excited for what you guys are working on and what's around the corner. And, you know, only big things. There's some people in Nashville that you just feel like their success is guaranteed because of how hard they work, how connected they are and how much is going around. And if it doesn't work in some way, they're going to find a way for it to work in another way. And, you know, I totally feel that way about you that, you know, one way or another, something's going to work, something's going to happen. And it already is. So, you know, so excited that we were able to talk and you were able to come on and we'll have to do it again when the time is right and catch everyone up on where we're at. Perfect. I appreciate it, Zach, all the kind words. It's, you know, real quick story before we end it. Dylan, you know, when he was introducing me, said, hey, you got to meet this guy, uh, Zach Hewn. He is the most connected guy I've ever met on, you know, in the planet. And his Instagram is so funny. You know, you got to follow it. So, you know, I had high expectations for you, Zach. You met him. Um, and so you've been, a, you've been a really great friend of me in Nashville and uh, in the work we're doing. So I appreciate all the motivation you give me. And, uh, you know, if I could be of help to anybody going forward, uh, I'm more than happy to open myself up to anybody who would like to send an email. Um, my email is alex at riserhouse.com. Um, if I can help anybody in any way, I think that, you know, the biggest thing about this industry we're in is pay it forward. Um, I'm always the first person to say I'm willing to help. So. I love it. Well, stay well, be safe out in New York. You know, I hear the cases there are kind of high. So, so wear a mask, don't go outside. And uh, there it is. He's got the mask on. We'll talk soon. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Zach. Have a great day. Thanks again for tuning in. And thanks again to Alex for coming on the show. The dozenth episode. Hope it lived up to your expectations. I mean, come on. How good was that? I mean, that, that was killer. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman. And our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com. Or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.